0: Open with me a copy and a copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'll be out of town and our youth and family director, uh, Matt Jackson, will be preaching for us next week. I will miss you, but look forward to hearing that sermon on the other side. Pray for him this week as he prepares. Thanks for praying for your preachers here. It's always good to know who's busy this week in the study. Well, there are some things in life you get to pick, and there are some things that get picked for you, some things that are appointed for you. Uh, Going back to college, and this would apply to kids in, uh, well, let's go all the way back to high school or elementary school, when you would want to pick a teacher, I moved around a bit, so sometimes I might be in a, a school where they let you ask for what teacher you want, and maybe it has to do with how many kids are there, uh, or how, a particular philosophy of uh, uh, of how they put the classes together, or maybe um, maybe there isn't so much demand for one teacher. Well, I remember some instances in which we were able to basically pick a teacher, and in other instances, different schools where. That wasn't an option. We got the teacher. I was given a teacher. And if I had to pick, I might pick a teacher that was understanding, one that had a good reputation for getting along with students and understanding students and being helpful in their disposition. You might pick based on competency. You'd certainly want both. I suppose you could get what you wanted, and you'd have an understanding teacher who didn't understand the material. Or you'd have a competent teacher who repelled you from the material because they were unhelpful in their spirit towards you, didn't like kids, been doing this too, too long. You know, and sometimes a teacher gets picked for you and it's, it's just right. Well, a teacher, a teacher is there in your life to help prepare you for an aspect of, of life. Well, the high priest in the life of Israel and our high priest priest is, for us, a preparation for eternal life, not just an aspect of this life. And the good news for us this morning is that we don't pick our high priest. It is picked for us. He is picked for us by one who knows our needs perfectly, and he is perfect for us. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 5, the first 10 verses. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who had said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is God's word for us today. One unifying theme, uh, that of appointment, appointment. Look at the beginning and the end of the passage with me. In verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. In verse 10, Jesus Christ was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now look right in the the middle of the passage. If those are the bookends, this is the binding or the the very center. The hinge, verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You're my son, today I have begotten you. So there's one theme that unites this passage, and it is is that of the appointment of a high priest. There are two parts to the passage. You can break it down right in the middle there at verse 5. You'll notice I called it a hinge passage between verse 4 and 5. No one takes the honor for himself. That is that of being a high priest, uh, only those called by God. And then verse 5, so also, now the subject changes, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed. Last week, our passage, uh, take a look at it with me, in chapter 4, was chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. A beautiful high point in the book, and there are two of these, just like this, that summarize the message of the book. Need Last week, we were compelled to hold fast to Jesus as our great high priest. And it was the book of Hebrews in brief, in your pocket, we said. Well, this week's passage starts us into the larger argument and body of the book that will extend all the way to chapter 10, through chapter 10. And this week's passage helps us with an answer, the beginning of an answer, to why we should hold fast to Jesus as our high priest. Getting after, in the first place, this question of what a high priest is. You and I don't think much on priests and high priests, and particularly all the intricacies of the Old Testament story and, and priestly system. But apparently this is important for us. I've said it before, and I'll mention it maybe a few times before the series is over. The book of Hebrews is often, helpfully to some extent, simplified by teachers by saying that this book is about how Jesus is greater, greater than Moses, greater than the angels, greater than Joseph, greater than, excuse me, Joshua, etc. etc. And it's true that Jesus is greater than fill in the blank, and you can keep filling in the blank. But thinking of Hebrews as simply Jesus is greater than a list of characters or works uh, happens to flatten out the book too much. There is a unifying center to the book. There is something that holds all of those things and people that Jesus is greater than together. And we don't want to miss that. This book is centrally about an exhortation for you and I to persevere in the faith, in obedient, faithful obedience to Jesus, in the face of trial and temptation and suffering on account of Jesus' name. And it presumes that that is difficult and we need help. And this book is here with more than an exhortation, but it is here with help, an exposition of the Old Testament, in particular, Jesus' priesthood. We could say that the book is, for us, help to persevere through our great high priest. We need Jesus' great high priestly work for more than just his payment for our sin in the past, but we need his high priestly work ongoingly. And in fact, what might surprise us is that the key to holding fast to Jesus in hard times, in high winds, on the sea, is... A personal, spiritual, deep grasp of Jesus as great high priest. And so we start in to the body of this book of Hebrews by growing in our understanding of who Jesus is as our great high priest. And today's passage cuts two ways and we'll spend our morning in two two parts in the first place considering a description of For a job, a job description uh, for which no one can apply, and then we'll look at an appointment you don't want to miss. So first, a job description no one can apply for. A job description might come with a variety of details. You might have qualifications if you're looking at a, a job posting, there might be some qualifications you'd see if you meet them or not. There might be a little description of responsibilities and functions. Uh, Can I do that? Is that something I'm interested and able to do? There might be a description of relationships and reporting functions, all of that. All that's helpful in a job description. This is something like that. Since we're being told to hold fast to Jesus, our great high priest, it would be helpful in such a long book for us to at least spend a little bit of time Considering, what is a high priest? So let's do that. What is a high priest? Uh, Five bullet points on this job description. The writer did my work for me. I'm literally just going to pull these off the page. In the first place, the high priest must be chosen from among men. Every high priest is chosen from among men. Men. So where do we look to get our high priests? You're an ancient Israelite. Even us today, where do we look to get a high priest? <clears throat> well, do you look, you look up for an angel to drop out of the clouds? Uh, someone to be lowered down from, from heaven to serve us? It is, an, after all, a heavenly kind of work. It involves profoundly spiritual things, as we'll, we'll see and the answer is no. You don't get them from there. You get them from here. You get them from humanity. Uh, just regular old humans, really, will do. Uh, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So that's the first thing. If you're not a human, uh, you, can't, you can't do it. It's not going to work. You do not apply. And as we'll see a little later, You can't apply anyways. So what are we even doing? Well, we'll see. Just hang on. Special kind of job. So, it's for humans. In particular, it's for men. The point is, the the high priest is from among humanity. Now, why? Well, second half of the next line in verse 1. Because he is appointed high priest, in order to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to act on behalf of men before God. Now, if you were to look at the high priest, Aaron, in the Old Testament, and the background for this is in Exodus chapter 28 and chapter 29, Aaron would be dressed dressed in garments which reflected this representative work. Aaron's garments would be beautiful. They would be decorated. There were stones, a stone, each one representing a different tribe of Israel. The names of God's people, the tribes, were were held over the heart of the priest. He wore them close to himself as he entered into God's presence. What he wore when you looked at the priest, his uniform, his gear, told you about what he was doing. And the high priest was representing humans. He was representing the people. If you see someone in a hazmat suit, um, that'll tell you something about what they do. Uh, If you see someone in a hazmat suit, they might be dealing with nuclear waste. They might be dealing with some type of other hazardous substance. In any case, they need it to protect themselves. And even Aaron and what he wore suited him for a particular place. So as you look at Aaron, you can see by what he's wearing that he is to represent people. He represents the people. And by where he goes, you can tell Who he's representing the people to, to God. For he would work, his place of work, his context of work, his office, was all the way in the tabernacle. Now he could only go into the best part of his office once a year, the Holy of Holies. But that's where he worked. And he dressed appropriately for work. He would come with blood. Some was offered at an altar, some for himself, some for the people. The blood of a goat that was killed on the day of atonement he would go all the way into the holy of holies and there in the course of making his way there he'd pass by a table a lampstand and these these symbols represent the very presence of god and they're somewhat random if you just drop into the old testament cold but if you back up and look at the whole story you'll see that that lampstand is representative of the tree of life it had sort of ornate way about it that held out the image of a tree. And there was bread in there, the bread of the presence that represented fellowship with God, something that we had in the garden with God when he walked with us. That holy of holies, the most inner place that one man can go just once a year represented the reuniting, a reconciliation with, a, a, a new contact with, humanity and God, by means of a representative, the high priest. The high priest acted on behalf of men before God. And we couldn't all go in, as a congregation, we would stand outside the tabernacle, but that high priest, representing humanity, representing God's people in particular, would go in on our behalf. And it was a sign of God's commitment to his people that he is here, and he is here with us, he intends to dwell with us, and he has provided a way for that to be possible. That's the kind of God that we have. Remember, that whole Old Testament sacrificial system and the the tabernacle and all of that complexity wasn't about God trying to keep us away, make things more complicated than they need to be. It was about him offering a way to him when we had been banished from the garden, a sign of just how gracious he is coming all the way to live among us and make it possible for us to live among us him so you consider his, his uniform and you consider his place of work that high priest and you can see the nature of his work is that of mediating representing he's a go between humanity and God now that's why he needs to be a man because he needs to be able to represent humanity well how does he represent us in concrete terms well Next line here. He acts on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, it might be that gifts and sacrifices is synonymous for all those sacrifices that the high priest and the priests would offer. I tend to think that this is a two-part way of describing all the sacrifices, but gifts as referring to the first set and sacrifices referring to the second. So in our in, in the Old Testament system of sacrifices, uh, there were many of them. They're obscure when you read them the first time, but there were two kinds. The first kind were not in the main offered up as a sacrifice to deal with sin. So an animal would be put up on the altar as a burnt offering, entirely consumed, as a, making a pleasing aroma to God. And that sacrifice was a gift to God. Now, it's not because God needs a good eat and he likes a good meal. It's that that sacrifice and the offering of the entirety of it was symbolic of our offering of our whole life to God. And it teaches the people that God is pleased with a whole life devoted to him. And there was another offering, the grain offering, and that would be offered with the burnt offering. And it was kind of like a tribute. So if you were to go into a palace and visit a king, you might bring a gift. Good idea. Well, it would be like that a grain offering of thanksgiving, of tribute, of recognition, and of honor. That was a second offering. And that was always offered with that first one. There's a third offering. It was called the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And that's one where you'd offer it, but part of it, and then you'd get to eat some of it with your family and friends. Now, it's not that God was full and he had enough of these things and you got to eat anyways, but God was teaching his people through that third offering that he's at peace with them. He intends to be at peace with them. And togetherness, peace together, is represented by food and warm fellowship. Now, at our best in our homes, are the best times, ought not the best times to be around the table eating, facing each other, and talking and enjoying food? Well, God built that into the world, and he built it into the story, and he built it into his plan to tell us that he intends to enjoy fellowship, friendship with us. And that's what the peace offering was for. None of those... I'm saying in the main because there's some debate over this, but their their primary purpose, each of them, were just as I've described. Those we could call gifts. They're offered as gifts to God, as a pleasing aroma to Him. They make Him happy. But there were two other offerings, a fourth and a fifth, sacrifices that were offered specifically to deal with sin. Uh, A fourth offering that was called a sin or a purification offering and you'd offer that one for the sins you've committed. Uh, not the high-handed sins. You, you really can't come in and offer an offering with your fist clenched against God. Uh, hating Him, but off, offering the sacrifice anyways to get away with your hatred of God and your hard heart. No, that doesn't count. But, but those everyday sins. Hate to see it, but we've got them, don't we? We have everyday sins. We struggle with sin. We come to Him and we ask forgiveness. And... And the sacrifice, that fourth one, taught us that God receives sinners who come to him with the right sacrifice. And he forgives them. And then a fifth sacrifice, it's called a, a guilt offering or a repair offering. And this is where you'd offer it and then you'd go make things right with your friend. And that making things right with your friend was a part of the deal. You might have to repay them back and add a little, a little something and there's instructions for that in the law. And in the course of these offerings being offered in the Old Testament system, you would offer your sin offering first, and you'd deal with reconciling with your neighbor first, and then you'd offer that burnt offering, and you'd offer that grain offering, you'd offer that peace fellowship offering. It would all end with food. So that whole system, I think that's summarized nicely here. The high priest chosen from among men to act on their behalf in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. See, as the congregation watched the priests do this, and the high priest do this, it wasn't that they were watching him do something between him and God, and they were on the outside, it's that they're watching their representative do that. He acted on man's behalf. It was good to have a good high priest. It was good to have a qualified high priest, an obedient high, high priest. Well, these high priests, they were dealing with sinners all the time. Priests were, and certainly the high priests, they were privy to everything. Must have been kind of depressing, maybe a little exhausting. Maybe the high priest would be tempted to frustration, even agitation with sinners, and we could understand that. And yet, it was part of the, the high priest's qualification that he'd be sympathetic with sinners. That's the next one. He must be sympathetic For sinners have sympathy for humans in their sin. He can deal gently, verse 2, with the ignorant and the wayward. Well, that's you and me. Since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. For he is one of them. Uh, Growing up, my dad would always say, at some point, you need to work in retail or restaurant or both. And uh, I don't remember if he explained why. Eventually, I got it when I worked in restaurant and then later in retail. Uh, This is what people go through. Um, There's something about... Having to serve tables and deal with the kitchen around back. And we were out for pizza last night and the cheese one came out and the one with all the meat on it that the rest of us wanted to eat, some of us are eating cheese, uh, came out after we were done with the cheese pizza and the, the kitchen got something wrong and the server was real friendly about it. And we're like, well, we'll take the one you got wrong. Like they already threw it away. Oh, okay, we'll just make the one they're remaking then. That's fine. And they gave us ice cream to hold us over and that was friendly of them. And I remember my dad would, uh, he actually, well, he was one of the hardest on servers and waitresses that I can remember, but, but he was always upset if we didn't get drinks. You know, like we'd go around the table, and I was mostly an adult in college. I'm like, I'm good with the water. I was like, get a drink. Uh, they're not here for free. And he wanted to make sure that we did right. We're, they're not here to serve us a bunch of waters, and uh, I get water typically, but he also knew how to tip, and that's important. So what's going on there? Well, retail, restaurant, we encounter and deal with these people all the time, and it's, it's good for us to be able to understand working in that direction. Well, there's something about going through something your, your own, on your own, where you, you may still have an expectation, even a clearer expectation of what to expect, and yet there's an understanding of how things Go. Your expectations are in check. They're actually managed. Verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. This matter of dealing gently has to do with emotional self-control, one's posture toward someone else. It, It involves an understanding posture. And it's a particular word chosen just for this purpose, to avoid some ditches. The high priest was not to be indifferent towards sin. And the high priest was not indifferent towards sin. I suppose it was his job security, but also it was his job to deal with sin and offer sacrifices on behalf of sinners, which means not skirting around what sin is. He had to teach concerning what sin is. And yet, while not indifferent, he was also not irritated because he himself had the same weaknesses (laughs) and often committed the same sins in his own life or that week and he was going to have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins anyways and that all had a way of keeping the high priest in his place he acted on behalf of men before god and yet he was understanding and apparently he was to be to be gentle he was serious but without severity he was sympathetic but without softness or Sentimentality around sin or superficiality. He was not unfeeling and yet he was not fierce and fearsome. He was gentle at his best. Isn't this something of what it is to parent well? To hold up a standard and to take that standard seriously for their good? Spare the rod and hate the child that is love to direct the child in the way and to discipline a child. And yet to handle our children with care. Not cruelty, but care. Because we care for our children. And in the workplace, bosses and those who oversee others, is this not the same? Oh, in the home and in the workplace, I've been guilty of being too direct and sharp and unfeeling and uncaring at times. But isn't it a good thing that the high priests for, for the people were not at their worst to be, but they were to be at their, their best? And at our best, as employees and as parents, we look at those we lead or care for or shepherd or parents And we see ourselves wrestling with a problem or struggling with a failure of some kind. And while we may hold up a standard that helps to temper our interactions, even when we have to circle back around and say, hey, I'm sorry about that, we can relate to the individual who has failed in some fashion. So, just a word to parents this isn't a passage on parenting, but I think by analogy, in our parenting experience, we can understand something of how the high priest functioned. And pastoring is, a, is, a, is in view here as well. Maybe there is a bit of an application here. Pastors are not priests in relationship to God and man, as we'll see, like the old covenant priests were. And yet consider the description of a pastor in his role Peter exhorts elders, as himself a fellow elder relating with them and a witness of Christ's suffering, to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, leadership is needed, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And pastors and elders are to be respectable and gentle, even as they need to act the shepherd at times with a rod and a staff, gently leading, fighting off wolves, hollering to keep the flock together. So pastoring and parenting offer us an analogy here. The high priest must be sympathetic with humans in their human Sinfulness. And finally, and this one's surprising. The high priest must be appointed by God. Verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself. See, you can't apply for it. There's no web form. But only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So your, your kid sees the fireman all dressed up, working the fire, and wants to grow up and do that, and go for it. Um, not so with the high priest. So you watch Aaron all dressed up, the high priest going into the, high, the Holy of Holies. Um, kids excited about doing that one day. It's not an option. So the, the priesthood was reserved for the Levites, and Aaron and his sons would be the high priests to represent the people of God. God picked it. God chose. God called, just as Aaron was. And this would have been a rebuke, a correction. I said shocking even for the original readers. For in the first century, at least in Jesus' day, for some decades, the high priests had been appointed by Roman rulers. The Roman rulers, as a help in keeping things in check and keeping some control over the, the, uh, the Jewish population that was under their, their control, would appoint the high priests. Herod in Jesus' day had that all under his control, and the Jews had gotten good and used to it. But wait, it's not Herod who is to appoint the high priest. It is God through Aaron and his sons who appoints the high priest. Back in the time of Reformation, and this is instructive for us today, uh, John Calvin Commented on this very passage in his commentary. For as it pertains to God only to rule his church, so he claims this right as his own, that is, to prescribe the way and the manner of administration. Hence, deem it as indisputable that the papal priesthood is spurious. For it has been framed in the workshop of men. God nowhere commands a sacrifice to be offered now to him for the expiation of sins. And that's because within the context of the Roman Catholic Church, the priest's role is to function as Christ's representative, actually Christ to you, offering up Christ through the Mass as a re-sacrifice of the Son of God for your sins which need a re-sacrifice with each visit to Mass. Nowhere does he command priests to be appointed for such a purpose. While then the Pope ordains his priests for the purpose of sacrificing, the Apostle denies that they are able to be counted lawful priests. They cannot therefore be such, except by some new privilege that they exalt themselves above Christ. For he dared not of himself to take upon him this honor, but waited for the command of the Father. This is a personal anecdote, but in my own story as a Christian, it was in high school that I came to, early high school, came to know the Lord. And it was at that time that I was bonding with Christian friends and praying for and speaking to unbelieving friends in school. And there are all kinds of wonderful stories from those four years in high school. And seeing some friends come to Christ, several coming to find out they came to know Jesus, half a decade or a decade later, And chasing me or another friend down, or in another case, bumping into one of these friends from high school at seminary where he's training to be a pastor, another friend who's off in the military and back and married, and I remember him sitting in my family room talking about his sin and the struggle with sin and all of the the depths of it that he was inside, and the Lord saved that young man, and he has put him to good and faithful work. To my knowledge, he's a faithful husband and churchman to this day. Well, in some instances, we had friends who were good friends and involved in their local Catholic church. And in those days, it was our great concern to understand Catholic teaching and to speak to our friends concerning the gospel that saves. And we were busy with that, studying to understand That's high school. This is anecdotal. In my adult life, among Christian friends, it seems that whenever Catholicism comes up, or we mention someone who is Catholic, the next comment is, but of course they can be saved. Or, I'm not one of those who believes that all Catholics aren't saved. And let me offer that it's possible to be justified by faith alone and saved by Jesus' blood and to be in an apostate church. But what are we doing talking like that? Landing that emphasis? The reason we do that is so that we might come off as friendly and not unfriendly. As loving toward our Catholic neighbors and not as unloving. But friend, dear friends, it is not loving to assume that because some may be saved in an apostate church that this neighbor or that who is friendly and has their life together and may stick with their marriage and raise their kids faithfully and speak of Jesus even, to assume and to hope the very best and not to labor to understand what it is that they believe and what it is the Catholic Church teaches and to confront them with the fact that to be saved is to repudiate and reject emphatically the Catholic Church's teaching concerning salvation. If for any reason that this whole matter of the priesthood is entirely in contradiction with the word of God. The father appoints his priests, not any man. The pope does not appoint priests. The Catholic priesthood is an unlawful priesthood. So let us love our Catholic neighbors by doing the work to understand what it is that the Catholic Church teaches so that we might speak with them and discover that they are saved by faith and grace alone in Jesus' blood in spite of the teaching that they're getting. That would be great. And then, if that's the case, to draw them into a church that is not in opposition to Jesus. Calvin was concerned and men and women laid their lives down in order to proclaim this very truth that I'm proclaiming to you this morning. We can thank God for them. Well, this brings us to the conclusion of that first part concerning what a high priest is, that job description. If we had to put it really simply, not in five bullets, we would say that a high priest must represent the people to God. And relate to the people as one who has been there and he must receive his role humbly as jesus did not taking the honor to himself but being appointed this is the high priest's job now to the second half because all of this foundation work is leading to a clearer vision of who jesus is an appointment that you don't want to miss Verses 5 through 10. And I'm putting it that way because this is a setup for what's to come. Chapters 5 through 10, the body of the letter, the argument concerning Jesus' priesthood, and why he is such a great high priest, and why you need to hold fast to him. That's where we're headed. Now, some of the things we're going to talk about here, we will pick up on in four weeks. Three Sundays between now and then. Because, as the author typically does... It's not a digression, but he moves into a warning passage, and over the next several weeks we'll be in a kind of a warning vein, and then back to exposition of Jesus' high priesthood. So this is an appointment you don't want to miss, and this is going to frame the months to come. We've looked at a job description, and now we look at Christ and his qualifications, In the first place, Jesus Christ was appointed by God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you say, Wait, he's not working from the first bullet down to the fifth. Uh, You're right about that. He just started with the fifth bullet on appointment, and he's going to work his way back up. This is one of those passages that works like that. The book of Hebrews is so elegant. And you see more of it the more that you read it. And so now we work through the job description from bottom bottom up. Jesus Christ is appointed by God. And he gives two quotes to back this up. The first one from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm that speaks of the great king and Messiah to come, the Davidic king to come, which God says of that greater son of David, you are my son and today I have begotten you. And don't give any thought to this being, God had a baby and it was Jesus, and Jesus didn't exist as the eternal son of God, as we've said, a whole half dozen passages in the book of Hebrews would say otherwise, that's not what he's saying. This passage right here, as, a, as, a, as the preaching in the book of Acts 13 would show, has to do with his resurrection and his enthronement. Today I have begotten you. Today I have, you have been uh, brought forth as the firstborn of a new creation, risen from the dead, new life, and enthroned and seated, declared with power to be the Son of God, the, the King, the Davidic King. That's what Psalm 2 refers to. And now you're like, all right, I'm following. It's not his incarnation and the beginning of Jesus, but it has to do with his resurrection and his enthronement as king. But that doesn't have anything to do with his priesthood. Well, yes, it does. The next quote here is from Psalm 110. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I want to read a few verses for you. We've been in Psalm 110 before in the book of Hebrews. It's on his mind. It should be. Psalm 110, we read, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, so the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. He's, who is that? He's David's Lord, his greater son to come. Here's what the Lord says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is kingship. But then, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, which is it? King or priest? Because in the Old Testament, you were a king or you were a priest, if you were a leader among Israel. Uh, But you weren't both. This is an indication that the Messiah to come will be a king a son of David, and he'll also be a priest. It's a hint. It's a hint. It's clear enough right there. But it's a hint as to what kind of savior God would one day provide. Melchizedek is a character mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's fine to be as perplexed with his story as it is with his name. None of you will name your children after Melchizedek, I don't think. But it's an important name to know. We'll spend some time talking about Melchizedek, likely on Christmas morning. I want it to be a straightforward sermon for all of our sake and for those who will be with us who are not usually with us, and I'll decide a little bit later, but if we just keep working through Hebrews, it'll be a Sunday. A Melchizedekian Christmas, as they say, comes around every 1,400 years. It's the cicada of Christmases. Melchizedek. We won't spend a lot of time on him now, but he appears twice in your Old Testament. Once in Genesis chapter 14, he appears with Abraham. He's a Gentile king priest in Salem, probably Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was Israel's. And Abraham pays a tithe to him and... Melchizedek blesses Abraham, there's something going on there, we move on. We never get anything more from Melchizedek, but David, meditating on this little interaction in Psalm 110, sees that the future Messiah, the king, will be also a priest, but not a priest in the order of Aaron and the Levites, but a better, different kind of priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews will unpack all that that means in The week's ahead, so stay tuned. A priest and a king. Well, is he sympathetic? Because that's a lofty position. The father's right hand. Yes, he's sympathetic. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, Jesus was able to sympathize, not because he was a fellow sinner, but for a different reason, because he had been tempted along with us in every way that we're tempted yet without sin but look at his circumstances and his pain here he cried out to his father with petitions and supplications and in tears he literally cried out and he cried as he as he cried out to his to his father he was really tempted and he really suffered and what's in view here probably the garden of gethsemane is in view where Jesus prays to the Father, is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? That's why he, I think it's, that's in view as it says he prayed to him who was able to save him from death. It seemed that Jesus is in that, that final hour before the hour as it has come. But no doubt in view is his whole life of suffering as well. In which he prayed over and again. And he was heard, the Lord heard him because he was righteous, because of his reverence. And he was delivered from death not to avoid it but he was delivered from death through the resurrection from the dead. And he comes out as a a priest having been killed and now raised and able to sympathize with you and me and we can go to him and be understood because he has been there. Wherever you are, he has been there. And he also offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. So he does bring gifts and sacrifice, that of his own life. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If you're a son in royalty, you get given titles and given positions and given things. In this case, it was good and earned. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Does that mean that he he was disobedient previously or would have been disobedient without suffering? No. It's more that he was his, his obedience was tested and shown true, and he experienced it. Consider that when Jesus, the son, the son, was born incarnate as a baby, he was not yet able to save. Well, why not? Isn't he, a, isn't he the Savior? Well, yes, but he wasn't... Able to save yet. Well, why not? Because he had to live for us and suffer for us. And that's why in the next verse it says he is made perfect. That has, to be, that has to do with his perfection as a savior. He wasn't able to save us yet, but he had to live and teach and fulfill scripture and obey and suffer so that he could be a perfect high priest for us. Made perfect, having learned obedience through what he suffered and what's the result so he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and now the result verse 9 and being made perfect he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him he removed all barriers between us and god that's acting on behalf of man and god the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him Perfectly qualified to save, a perfectly qualified high priest, full in his humanity, obedient in his humanity, offering himself up as a perfect sacrifice for sins. Doesn't this have an encouraging, assuring, comforting ring to it? Look at where this goes. He was made perfect. You have a perfect Savior in Jesus if he's yours. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Put that in your pocket and carry it around this week. The source of eternal salvation. This is not a hit or miss selection. God's appointment of this high priest was spot on. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled what was required so that you have eternal salvation. And to mark for a moment once again the contrast here with what is offered through the Pope and his priests through the Roman Catholic Church, by way of contrast, You don't have anything like that kind of comfort. You don't put that in a line like that and take it home with you and take it to bed with you, sinner though you know you are. The Catholic Church's teaching, like the Bible's teaching, is that righteousness is required for acceptance before God. But they would say, and the Pope would teach, that righteousness is infused in you by grace, So that you actually become righteous and therefore be acceptable to God. Your sins are forgiven each week with the Mass, through the re-sacrifice of Christ. And through the sacraments you receive grace. You are progressively becoming more righteous, but because you're going to die, not perfectly righteous. This is the purpose of purgatory. Something about which the Bible speaks no word because it is not actually needed. Because Christ died for all of our sins. And purgatory is where the rest of your sinful impurities are burned away until you are perfectly righteous, and therefore you arrive to God's presence righteous. And they would say, all that's by grace, because God by His grace made you righteous. But come on! Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Was His suffering not enough? And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. We wrestle with the fact that we have sin in our hearts. I hope, Christian, that you do. I hope that you are not comfortable with it. But do not fall to the temptation to think that somehow the answer is in you bringing forward righteousness, even with God's help, in order to be finally accepted by Him. Or to feel better about yourself by presuming to go away for a while and to suffer for your sins in order that you might arrive righteous. Because it would feel a whole lot better to arrive righteous, wouldn't it? For all that God has done for us, for as holy as he is, I kind of want to deal with it myself. I kind of want an answer to show up perfect. And then give God credit, but be done, be finished, be righteous on arrival. That is not the Bible's teaching and I'm so glad that it's not the Bible's teaching because I can take comfort in that simple word there. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, the Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Abraham trusted God's promise. And he obeyed from faith. And he was counted righteous. But he was not received because of his Obedience from faith. He was received because righteousness was credited to his account. And this is the good news of the gospel that comes to us because we have a great high priest. You and I can arrive at heaven's doorstep, the very presence of God, where no Israelite could go, symbolized in the tabernacle, perfectly and completely accepted because of the righteous life offered on your behalf by Jesus. And he did that for you. He suffered sin under temptation and he did not sin. And he did all this for you. And he doesn't arrive there at the father's right hand saying, you better get your life together because of all that I've done for you. And yes, I'll keep helping you. No, he offers you a sympathetic helping hand. And he receives you over and again as you come to him, a sinner, and confess your sins And on death, friend, if your trust is in him, your faith is in him, he will receive you. Now, you wonder about this line here, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And you say to yourself, well, I don't obey perfectly. Well, that's not what he's talking about, or else we wouldn't have needed a cross, right? So what does he mean? Well, turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 3, and I'll bounce across a few passages for you to comfort you and clarify the response that is needed for us as Christians and for those of you who are listening who are outside of Christ and considering the way in. Verse 19 of chapter 3, The Israelite generation was not able to enter God's rest, the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. Therefore chapter 4 while the promise of entering rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to fail of reached it for good news came to us just as to them and what's the difference between us and them then but the message they heard did not benefit them well how might the message of promise benefit us well it didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed enter that rest. And then verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today. He uses obedience and faith in a roughly synonymous fashion. In Hebrews chapter 11 the author, back to Hebrews chapter 5, where we're today. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we find a helpful clarification on this point. Where it is said that Abraham, by faith, obeyed. And that's all we do as Christians. We trust the Lord and His word, and so we turn and we start obeying Him. Not perfectly, for we need a cross. But there is a transformation of life. There is a persevering and a hanging on. And that's what this book is about. But don't miss that this obedience is the obedience in the first place of faith. So is he your high priest? Is Jesus the great high priest and the only high priest appointed by God by which you may be saved? Is he your high priest? I pray he is. If he is... Turn to him, if he isn't, turn to him in faith. If he is your high priest, keep on believing. And from faith, keep on obeying. Hold fast to him. And the last thing about this great appointment of Jesus is that he is designated a high priest by God after the order of Melchizedek. And more on Melchizedek in a few weeks. If you want to read ahead, you can read behind and read Genesis chapter 14. And you can read ahead Hebrews chapter 7, which is where we'll be. Now to land it, I just want to point something out at the beginning and the end of this verse. uh, Section verse 1. Every priest is chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. In verse 10 being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is appointed a great high priest. God is involved in salvation. As we have sung, the Lord is our salvation. It is his plan. We don't get to pick our high priest. We don't get to choose our way to God. We don't get to choose our way to heaven. There is one way, and it is through a very great high priest who is a sure way, a certain way, perfectly qualified to get us all the way there so that you and I can hear these words and be perfectly comforted. For Jesus was made perfect, and in so being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks now for a great high priest who can really represent us, who can truly relate with us, although he never sinned. And a great high priest who did not exalt himself, but humbly received this appointment from you. And we pray for help to be a church that trusts And believes wholly in this priesthood. And is not tempted by any other priesthood. A church that knows all that we have. So that we can hold it out with open arms. Even with sympathy and understanding to our neighbors. Father, give us the heart that you have toward us for our friends in this church. Our fellow church members. And for our neighbors in the community. Fellow sinners offering fellow sinners salvation, showing them what we have found. And within this church, fellow sinners reminding one another of all that we have in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.